0: Good morning and uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is uh, Julian Sanchez, I'm a senior fellow here and it is my distinct privilege to welcome you to our second annual surveillance conference. Uh, We live without doubt in interesting times and I am confident that a century from now, uh, we or our descendants will look back on the present day as the time when we made the critical decisions that would determine whether Uh, Americans and citizens around the world lived in uh, architectures of pervasive monitoring and surveillance uh, or uh, under a system that permitted uh, private and secure communications, which I believe are an absolutely essential precondition for and component of human liberty more broadly conceived. From the perspective of the present, however, even as we're making these decisions, uh, it may not be clear which decision we have made. Uh, The unprecedented disclosures about the scale of intelligence collection over the past several years have prompted uh, a a profound reevaluation of what had, I think, previously appeared to be the inexorable growth of surveillance and uh, large scale data collection. We have seen both through informal uh, responses within the intelligence community to these disclosures and uh, through statutory reform, most prominently the USA Freedom Act, which I'm uh, pleased to say was actually first announced at a Cato Institute surveillance conference uh, two years ago. but this has come under fire as something that may be more cosmetic than, uh, than substantive, while uh, I think even within the Cato Institute we've had disagreements over whether, um, whether these reforms, uh, I don't think anyone uh, you know, went, went far enough, but whether we're substantive enough to make a real difference in terms of the practical restraints on that data gathering apparatus. And so I can think of no one better to guide us through an analysis of the changes that have been wrought uh, in the past year than uh, Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times reporter Charlie Savage, uh, who is uh, both the author, who everyone here, I think if you follow these issues all have to be familiar with his work. Um, He's the author of Takeover, Over the Rise of the uh, Imperial Presidency Under President Bush, and of the forthcoming Power Wars. Uh, Check your... A local bookstore, if there are any of those left, uh, in early November uh, for an analysis of the imperial presidency under President Obama. I am privileged to turn it over to Charlie Savage.
1: Thank you, Julian. We didn't test these. Can you hear me? Great. So uh, two years ago, uh, as we all remember, in June of 2013, uh, Edward Snowden leaked uh, a gigantic trove of classified documents to uh, group of journalists in a Hong Kong hotel room, uh, made famous in Laura Poitras' great uh, Citizen Four documentary. And that kicked off a great awakening or an opening uh, up of the government uh, about what has been happening in surveillance over the last uh, 20 years as the explosive growth in technology that ended up with an Android or an iPhone in everyone's pocket uh, worked behind the scenes in the world of government spying on electronic communications at at an equally revolutionary pace. Uh, It wasn't just uh, Mr. Snowden's disclosures, but also the government's response to those disclosures in declassifying a great number of documents to sort of explain what the rules were and what the systems were for uh, governing these these operational capabilities that, uh, that Snowden revealed. And then further is groups like the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, several of whose members I see in the audience uh, conducted their own studies and produced reports that the public could read. And uh, through Freedom of Information Act lawsuits that further sort of leveraged this moment of declassification to get additional uh, uh, revelations into the public sphere, we just know a whole lot now that we did not know two years ago about uh, the government's capabilities and systems for eavesdropping on private communications in the modern era. And this has spurred reforms. This has uh, uh, spurred administrative reforms inside the executive branch. It's uh, spurred legislative reforms. And so at the beginning of this conference, uh, I think the the idea uh, of this panel is to go over in some detail what actually has already changed in the last two years as a result of this sort of pivotal moment uh, we've been living through, which doesn't mean it's over, and we'll conclude with some thoughts about that. So let me introduce uh, myself and the panelists uh, before we dive into the weeds here. Uh, I am a reporter at the New York Times, I cover national security legal policy. That has included he- a heavy dose of surveillance law and uh, capabilities in the last couple years, and uh, in addition, although, uh, and thank you for the book plug, Julian, this book's coming out in a week and a half. It's primarily about the Obama administration and its, its era in counterterrorism policy. Uh, we know so much more about surveillance now and its deep history than before that I did devote a 20,000-word chapter to trying to piece together everything that happened from 1978 to 2008 and how uh, what became what is now seems like a primitive and obsolete law of FISA uh, led to uh, the Stellar Wind Program and the FISA Amendments Act and the sort of modern era. Uh, so in putting all that together in a coherent narrative, filling in some gaps, so if that's of interest, check it out, by which I mean buy it, don't check it out. From- <laughs> uh, on my right to help, to help us talk about this is Kurt opsel He is the Deputy Executive Director and General Counsel of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, which is a California-based advocacy group interested in privacy and technology. EFF has been uh, at the forefront of leading legal challenges to surveillance. After the beginnings of Stellar Wind were exposed in 2005, suing AT&T, and then when Congress uh, immunized the telecoms, uh, moving that lawsuit to against the, become against the NSA instead to try to get judicial review of some of these novel issues involved with taking telecom laws that were written for telephone switch-based circuit systems and applying it to internet upstream Mm. technology, which works very differently and which requires a whole lot of uh, things that uh, really no court has rigorously reviewed, as far as we can tell, at least in public, for Fourth Amendment implications. And EFF has also been one of the major Freedom of Information Act litigants in the post-Snowden era. And to my left, I have Becky Richards. Since February of 2014, she has been the Civil Liberties and Privacy Director at the National Security Agency, which previously had no such role. She is the inaugural official in that capacity. So her job's very existence is part of the post-Snowden reform era. Uh, The Office of the Director of National Intelligence had someone with a, a mandate like that, but not the agency that did signals intelligence directly and she previously she did a similar, uh, similar work at the Department of Homeland Security. So as a brief overview here, there's gonna be <coughs> three sections. We're gonna talk about concrete changes to the rules, uh, then we're gonna talk about structural reforms to the government and atmospheric changes and attitudes towards transparency and openness, and then we're gonna talk a little bit uh, before I turn to questions about uh, whether this is it or whether there's more to come. So following the Snowden revelations, President Obama appointed a review panel to come up with recommendations and changes, and even before it completed its findings, uh, the U.S. government told the United Nations mission in New York that it would stop spying on its communications, Uh, and some of the the subsequent Snowden revelations have shown just how pervasive that spying was, including full take access of the internet line going in and out of the U.N. mission under a FISA court order. Uh, And in January of 2014, President Obama signed Presidential Policy Directive 28, PPD 28, which contained a set of changes to the rules, uh, primarily in that case aimed at the rights of foreigners. Uh, One of those reforms was that he, when the NSA engaged in bulk content collection, primarily abroad or under transit authority of foreign to foreign communications, uh, which FISA does not cover, it would only use that kind of uh, vacuum cleaner collection for the purpose of detecting security threats, which seems to exclude things like spying on trade talks and foreign intelligence that doesn't involve things uh, blowing up. Uh, And he also announced uh, that for the first time, the US would treat foreigners' private data with the similar protections that Americans' private data is in terms of masking irrelevant personal details, limits on disseminating to other parts of the government what is collected and requiring it to be purged after five years. So let's start with those sets of reforms. Uh, Kurt, from a privacy group perspective, especially these that are aimed at foreigners, whether they're at the UN or just random people abroad, you know, what is the significance of that? Uh, Is that enough? And, uh, you know, what do you make of it? Well, I think it is. it's very nice that they are
2: putting forth some of these uh, additional restrictions, but I think you have to keep in mind that that what it's being talked about here is not the initial acquisition, the, the initial uh, obtaining of all of this information, but what you are looking through it for, what are you going to do with it once you, you have it. So there's still a massive amount of acquisition of, of SIGINT, uh, and then there are some of these, these restrictions on what can be done with it uh, after it's collected, and it still raises a lot of the, the similar issues. Um, it is uh, for like data retention, for for example, um, you know, five years is actually a fa- fairly long time. Uh, and some things which are like encrypted communications will be uh, retained uh, longer. Um, so, you know, and I think it's it's a, it's nice to put those restrictions out there, but I'm not wouldn't say that it's enough.
1: Mm-hmm. And and Becky, if I could turn to you, you know, uh, in my own discussions with people on the inside when these reforms came out in January of 2014, I received sort of an ambivalent or an ambiguous assessment of it, um, which I'd like to ask you about. And the the assessment was, on the one hand, this is revolutionary. No country on earth that has significant uh, surveillance capabilities has written into its rules that foreigners abroad have some... You know, rights, or if not the if the right's the wrong word, but you know, are entitled to some sort of uh, you know protections. On the other hand, it's not like the NSA was you know willy-nilly rooting through stuff all the time for irrelevant to foreign intelligence purposes and. Uh, as a practical matter, it was already purging 1233 data for the most part after five years because there might be some U.S. person stuff mixed into the raw data. Uh, so, and U.S. persons had to be. And so, that was more like codifying existing practices than uh, really changing anything. Can you talk? To, you know, is it was it revolutionary? Was it just codifying existing practices? And what has been the operational impact a year and a half later?
3: So I think what is revolutionary is the transparency. So you haven't seen that level of transparency explaining both what are the overall principles for which we are going to conduct signals intelligence as well as what are some of those use restrictions, um, whether it's the six related to bulk. Also saying we're doing bulk collection, that we have a need to do that. That is really changing that conversation so we can substantively as a society have these discussions. Where do we want our surveillance to occur? How do we want our intelligence to be done? Um, This gives us many more facts to have those conversations in a public forum. So I think that's what's really revolutionary and I would really underscore that. Um, Substantively, Yes, we're now codifying things that were largely what we were doing before, but there's a real difference between, yeah, that's generally what you should do, and this is what's written, and therefore all the compliance mechanisms that are quite extensive within NSA are, are set to, to go into action, to make sure you delete the information in five years, to make sure that it's used for these six particular functions. And so those are real major changes.
1: Okay. So the, the, ne- the second set of concrete changes that we should discuss uh, involves Americans, and in particular, the, uh, the, uh, the first of the Snowden revelations, which was the existence of the Patriot Act bulk phone metadata collection program. Uh, in January of 2014, President Obama announced a couple of changes. He said he was going to restrict how far analysts could look when they've identified a number as linked to terrorism. Previously, they could go out three hops to who was called and who was called by them to, to, in terms of trying to find hidden associates of known terrorism suspects. And he was going to lower that to two hops, so just who was directly called and who they called, which would exponentially shrink the number of people whose data uh, was looked at. And secondly, he was going to require the NSA to go to the FISA court for permission Uh, for agreement that there was reasonable suspicion that this particular number is worth querying. And finally, he endorsed what became, uh, the idea of what became the USA Freedom Act, which was to get the government out of the business of bulk collection of phone metadata of Americans and move to a system where it had the same operational capabilities to contact chain through uh, phone records, but the bulk data would stay in the hands of the phone companies. Uh, so we, do, we have a little bit of data about the impact of that. We know that in 2013, the NSA pulsed 443 new phone numbers as suspected of links to terrorism before that change. And after that change, the number dropped to 161. So from 443 to 161 suggests that the uh, greater bureaucratic uh, hurdles to accessing this uh, had some kind of a substantive uh, impact. Uh, again, Kurt, I go to you mm-hmm. as, as the voice of the sort of privacy technology community. Is this significant? What do you like about this, and what do you think is, if anything, is inadequate?
2: Uh, well, I mean, three hops was a, uh, a, a ludicrous number of phone numbers you could get after uh, after three hops. So by moving it down to, to two hops, now it's just a lot of phone numbers instead of perhaps a, a ludicrous amount. Uh, <laughs> but I, I'm still sort of concerned... That you have, uh, you know, you have some court involvement with a, uh, a reasonable articulable suspicion standard for the uh, for the initial number, but then as you go to, you know, their friends and those friends' friends, you get to places where you have both parties to a communication, where there is no uh, identified uh, reasonable uh, articulable suspicion, uh, unless you're sort of credencing, uh guilt by association, um, that will will bring people. Into the ambit of this program, uh, without anybody, uh, without any third party making a determination of whether uh, whether that is appropriate for them, so it's still casting a, a very wide net that will bring in uh, uh, people who may have actually uh, nothing to do with uh, with the reason for looking at the first number.
1: And um, Becky, I have a similar question again for you. You know, so the US, The NSA has been living with this system. Uh, and we'll get to the what will become when USA Freedom becomes fully in place, but since January of 2014, it's had to go to the FISA court. Uh, it can't go out to that third hop. You know, what are you hearing inside your building? Are they saying, oh, we're, we're, this is not as useful as it was anymore? Our hands are tied? Or are they saying this was no big deal? What, what is your...
3: So I think there's a couple things. Um, with, uh, with 215 prior to USA Freedom Act, um, there, there's a real sense that it's an important tool in the tool belt of um, sort of the National Security Agency, and that's, that's really what's been said. Um, I think it's important when you look at different numbers to also look at the context of what was going on in the United States at those times. And so to say this time we had this many num- selectors and a year later we had fewer, um, you know, it's important to think about what were the threats within the United States and what were the threats not in the United States. And, and because 215 is really focused Within sort of that that within the United States, that's just something to keep in mind when we're talking about numbers. Um, 2013 was the Boston Bomber. That's just something, you know, you, we need to keep context when we think about all these different ones. Um, have there been changes? Um, sure. We now need to go to the court, we need to go through that, but it still remains a, an important part of the tool belt.
1: But do people complain about the changes? Do they say, this is. Uh...
3: People complain about the changes.
1: Yeah, I'm wondering, what? I mean, you're, 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 <laughs> you're. Open a window for us. Oh, this is so terrible.
2: It's oh, interesting. Oh, what the the I would fuck? say,
3: yeah. you know, actually, what I would say is that 215 was such a, a controlled activity pre. Um, up you know pre all of these activities that, that 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 didn't change the two to the three sure You know that was less, you know, that, that's less ability to do things But this was you know very there was a few number of analysts who are well trained who are able to use this But this was a pretty controlled so the, the cha- their change wasn't necessarily um, Substantial in terms of the administrative hurdles you had to go through
1: okay So the other interesting thing to say about the bulk phone records program is when Congress was on the cusp of enacting, finally, the USA Freedom Act earlier this year, sort of we were all surprised when the Second Circuit in New York appeals court uh, ruled that the program had been illegal all along. Uh, everyone was sort of—they had taken so long with that case that we had thought that they were just waiting for Congress to act, and then they could just dismiss it as moot. And instead, they waded in and said this theory that the words it, you can cl- collect, the FBI can collect information that is relevant to a counterterrorism investigation can be used to justify collecting everything because everything is relevant as long as you only look for things that are relevant later on. Uh, is just a stretch too far, uh, and that uh, therefore there was never a statutory basis legitimately for this program, which matched uh, some of the analysis by the PCLOB, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, in its report, and I know you're going to hear from uh, two of their members later today. Uh, And then sort of Congress basically ignored that ruling and passed the USA Freedom Act uh, without changes, without acknowledging and explicitly saying what, what was supposed to happen. And the reason why that was important was because USA Freedom envisioned a six month transition after which the bulk collection program uh, would be turned off and this sort of sub- replacement one would come online, which is supposed to happen about a, a month from now. Uh, but it didn't explicitly authorize a bulk collection program in the intervening six months. It sort of left the status quo, whatever that was, in place. And now we had a federal appeals court saying the status quo says this law, the statute can't be used as the government's been using it since 2006. Uh, so then a FISA court judge, however, uh, said, well, Congress knew what it was doing. I'm gonna let them turn this program back on for the next six months anyway, despite the appeals court ruling. And so we had this sort of spectacle of these two different courts the FISA Court doesn't report up through the Second Circuit. It's not directly subject to its authority. In conflict, the ACLU is trying to get the Second Circuit to issue an injunction, but it sure looks like the time, the clock's just going to run out, and we may never have a definitive answer. But, Kurt, can you you weigh? You know, part of this is not just about this program. It's about uh, whether these kinds of words can be used in secret court rulings in the future for technologies that don't even exist yet. Uh, you know, what's the impact of that precedent now and uh, And and what should we take away from it?
2: Uh, Well, a a couple of things. I mean, uh, as an initial matter, I mean, as you probably won't surprise anybody here, I think the Second Circuit uh, got it right when it was looking at this. Uh, you know, one of the key terms was, you know, relevant, relevant to an authorized investigation. And under the, uh, uh, the government's interpretation that they were pushing with the, with the FISA court, this meant all of, of the records, which essentially would, would meant that, that relevant wasn't any meaningful uh, limitation, that everything was relevant if it created the sort of body of information that you might be uh, finding something relevant in. Uh, and, and, you know, when uh, Section 215 was sort of being conceived, it was, uh, it was talked about as, as being similar to a, a grand jury subpoena, and it'd be sort of hard to imagine a, uh, a you know, magistrate judge uh, uh, outside of the FISA court saying, oh, yeah, with a grand jury subpoena, you know, you're, you're looking for something for your investigation. You can get all of the records that were ever created, so you can, you can sort through those. Uh, so this was, you know, that, that the FISA court got this one wrong uh, and that it may be symptomatic of it being a relatively, uh, well, until these amicus came out with USA Freedom, a one-sided court uh, that that is, is very much focused on uh, having, uh, uh, you know, dealing with surveillance uh, matters. Uh, and, and I think that is one of the greatest dangers that, that came out of uh, the, the, this process over, you know, since the, the FISA court was created and especially, over the last uh, decade, decade and a half, is having secret courts, having secret interpretations of, of the law that are, are not being judged by, uh, uh, you know, in the adversarial process, coming up with interpretations which uh, at least, uh, uh, you know, some, some well-regarded judges think are absolutely wrong, and yet are able to proceed uh, under those definitions all the interim uh, while. Now, I would say just say one, one thing on the, uh, on the USA freedom. There actually was a little bit in the House report that was saying we're, this is not intended to ratify the, the FISA court's uh, decision about uh, relevance, uh, so I, I don't think that, that Congress uh, intended to say that uh, going ahead under that interpretation was, was okay. Um, and I, I you know, we'll, we'll see if uh, the uh, ACLU case can get injunction. I believe we have like about a, a month uh, left before is that? When, when does the six month run out? November
3: 29th. November Nine hundred so. and probably thirty hours. <laughs> okay. is there is a big clock. <laughs> there the is big clock. A, There's a big clock, and we are working through exactly. And so, so um, you know, we're, we're working assiduously to get those in place and and have be able to transition over. It's at eleven fifty nine when the authority goes away, and we will be ready to go.
1: I mean, I, what, what is the 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 status of you is there a system now that has a computer that links into Verizon and AT&T and Sprint that is in the testing phase is there are we sort of i mean if it, what if what if it, today was November 28th would the NSA already be ready or is it sort of still got a lot left to do
3: uh, so we we're still working through exactly how to have all of that in place, but we're working on our systems. The providers are working on their systems and um, we're working through exactly how you might start doing the testing. but um, we're testing hasn't started yet. No, okay. no, we're still working through. Actually, let me
1: ask you one other thing um, about the second circuit ruling that occurs to me just yeah. as he's talking. you know the the throughout this this two year of of turmoil, post snowden part of the sort of self, explanation from where you work has mm-hmm. been, you know, we are a rules-based organization where we, you may not like the rules mm-hmm. and maybe the rules need to be changed, but what we do is we, you know, we try to obey the rules as they've, right. we've been given to them. And and the controversy isn't that we were some kind of rogue organization, it's that maybe, you know, people let us do more than what, <laughs> we were, you know, you and the public might have wanted, but we weren't off doing it in some kind of maverick fashion. What um, What was the reaction in Fort Meade to that Second Circuit ruling where you have three judges unanimously saying, no, this was illegal all along?
3: So I think you just go back to we were going through the processes and and you know roll yourself back to we had a grand bargain within with, with sort of how we were going to do surveillance and how we were going to do intelligence collection um, post with FISA and then FAA and so um, the, the view was we had a set of rules we're following the rules to the T we report what our compliance incidents are we report what it is we're doing again if you don't like the rules then let, let then you need to have changed the rules um, I think where uh, and. NSA is going is we're learning to be more transparent. And so this sort of gets to your next theme, I think. But, um, you know, this is an agency that for a very long time there was no sign on the Baltimore Washington Parkway saying this is NSA. And when that sign went up, people still tell me, oh, I couldn't believe it went up. What are they doing? So this is an agency that, um, you know, was very much not transparent. And so we are learning how to have those and be more transparent. And so I think we'll continue to have these conversations, but that's a big shift for us. And so as you talk about these different ones, I think uh, how we continue to talk about what we're doing will be an important part of that conversation.
1: Kurt, are are you satisfied with the new attitude of transparency as Becky describes it? I mean, I, I, the,
2: the more transparency, the better. Uh, but is there is there enough transparency? Um, I mean, I, I, I think not. Um, I mean, first of all, you know, where where we got to on the two fifteen program is it wasn't until that there were some uh, you know uh, revelations, including unauthorized revelations, that uh, that brought it to the public attention that we could even have a case where a court would determine that uh, that that there was this. You know what it term it was—illegal activity—and uh, nobody really would have suspected, looking at the language of Section 215, that someone—you know—that the government would use relevancy in this manner. You know, when it when it passed in the Patriot Act, people referred to it as the library provision. They were afraid that this was what how somebody—you uh, know—the government might obtain library records. Uh, there was a lot of concern about that. Um, and you know, we, we had no idea how that it was even you know, much, much worse than, than all of that. And then without that, uh, that transparency, uh, we weren't able to have that public debate, have a, a court go and look at it. Uh, so now we have uh, some more transparency, there's some unauthorized transparency, and there's been authorized transparency uh, that, is, that has given uh, more of a, an insight into this, but uh, we're, we're not all the way there. And there's, there's a couple of points, I think, worth, worth making on that. Um, one is uh, that in the context of, of discussing it, oftentimes uh, we have um, uh, non-standard definitions of, of words that have, uh, uh, you know, create the possibility for uh, people to be confused or, or or misled. And you know, one of the ones I, I wanted to highlight was uh, collection. And that oftentimes, when the government is using the term "collection," it is referring to the point when it uh, is being queried or, or reviewed by uh, by human uh, uh, agents. Um, when uh, you know, in, in a sort of a colloquial idea of collection, it might be that the sort of the moment it it passes outside of uh, the you know outside the control of uh, uh, the originator and into you know, know, add a splitter and get split off to uh, something that eventually goes to the government or when, you know, when it is obtained, acquired, there's all these different, uh, different words for it. And this allows someone to say, oh, we don't collect such and such. Uh, but that might not mean that it is not being acquired in some manner. There is not going into a, a database that is either uh, under the government's control or can be queried later uh, by, by the government. And so it makes it difficult to have this this conversation. And I think the, the the second aspect of this uh, is that. Uh, uh, even though there have been a lots of, of revelations. And, you know, uh, uh, it's been very difficult to get things like the Second uh, Circuit's ruling uh, because the government has been uh, saying that some things that are on the front pages of newspapers are nevertheless secrets that need to be treated a- as such. Uh, you know, the ACLU is able to go forward with the case because it so happened that they were using Verizon Business Services, which was the declassified uh, uh, FISA court opinion uh, leaked in, in June of 2013, that very provider. But they still uh, are not uh, a- a- admitting that uh, all the other providers were, were part of the program, so we should pretend that that really the only one that, that we know about is the Verizon Business Services. And we just had that in the discussion here where you were asking a question about hooking up with Verizon and AT&T, and Becky responded by talking about the providers without saying which one it was because we're supposed to pretend that uh, we don't know that uh, Verizon and AT&T participate. And I think that makes transparency uh, a little bit more difficult.
1: And before I turn to you, <laughs> just to when you speak of uh, you know so there's something interesting to raise here which is that one of the the primary lawsuit that's still out there trying to get judicial review of upstream internet surveillance is is uh, the Juul case Juul versus right? uh, which is an EFF case um, and you were state secret state, state secreted uh, earlier this year on the main issue which was attempting to get judicial review of that but one of the revelations kind of cuts against you, and uh, which is that uh, EFS has been arguing for years in court that the way upstream internet surveillance works is companies like AT&T split the line and give full take access to, to the NSA, which then goes through all those packets uh, with the selectors it's looking for and routes through and pulls out what it, it wants, whether it's um, keywords if it's purely foreign or, Uh, uh, targeted email addresses if it's one in domestic under the FISA Amendments Act. And uh, we learned through Snowden documents in a project that I helped with, but it was also ProPublica and Laura Poitras and so forth, that uh, actually, uh, that's not how it works, that the companies, the telecoms, are the ones that are doing the copying and the first cutting and filtering and giving to Fort Meade only those things which are responsive to the selector instructions which the NSA sends to the telecoms. So the telecoms are playing a much more active role in the, in the copying and the routing through than was previously understood. Uh, what does EFF say about that and what are its implications or not, what's the rebuttal to why that uh, messes up its case that the government is engaged in bulk dragnet content Fourth Amendment violating activity? Uh, well, let me say, you know, i I don't
2: think that that is going to be uh, a you know, uh, fatal to our case, and I think that uh, you know we'll we'll respond to to that in in court. Um, I, I'll, I'll point out that if you know a, a third party is acting as an agent of the government, that is still a governmental uh, activity. Um, but I think that this does on the on the transparency point is like, one of the things that, that we would really like is really just to uh, to have it out in in court. You know, uh, how do we apply our uh, our historical uh, aversion to general warrants? How do we apply the the Fourth Amendment uh, to a bulk collection program? Uh, and and to have a uh, a real discussion of that, uh, have the court review what is actually going on. And and, and by the court, I would like you know a. a Public court, like like the Second Circuit, or in our case, it would be the the, the Ninth Circuit, uh, and then come to a, a decision of how we uh, should move forward under our Constitution, uh, and that these uh, uh, things like the uh, state speaker's privilege, by the lack of of, of transparency, uh, they're they seem to be tr- trying to deter- um, keep it from the court, make it. Impossible for the court to decide that the question should be not whether what uh, what they're doing is legal or constitutional, but whether the court should be able to decide that, or whether uh, you know the the uh, you know, the plaintiffs have standing. Um, and uh, you know we do the the uh, um, I think the country uh, a disservice if we can't allow all of the, the facts to go to the court, so the court can decide. And under, under actually, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, there are provisions that would allow the court to get all of the facts and then decide if some of them needed to be uh, revealed to the plaintiffs, or some of them should be just known by, by the courts, uh, to make that determination. I think that's really the best way forward.
1: So Becky Kurt has raised two challenges to the uh, idea that the government is transparent now in a substantive, meaningful way, as you as you posit. One is it talks about things using terms uh, that sound, make people think that one thing is happening, but actually the government has a secret definition that means something else is happening, like collect versus acquire versus obtain. And another is that maybe it's talking about it uh, by you know, coming to sending someone like you to to come talk about it, or putting a sign up on on Washington Park the the, the road, but it's not uh, dropping its uh, state secrets strategy in court, and therefore it's preventing uh, judicial review of these questions that are so important in the twenty first century. So, what's the response to that?
3: So, I think I would just take us up a level and say. Um, I'm not going to speak specifically to to the the court situation, but what I would say is, um we're two years into trying to be more transparent and so so so, um, and, and I've been in the agency 18 months focused on on how we can be more transparent um, you know OD and I stepped up with a set of transparency principles that came out last January and there's actually a work plan that will be coming out that specifically starts to get to how do we shift the way we think so that we are not thinking everything should be classified all the time and what are the things that we can actually talk about so some of the things we can talk about are what are the safeguards that are in place what are the rules that we are associated, and those are some of the, those are the documents you've seen coming out, whether it's our AG minimization, you know, our AG guidelines for US person protections under um, the various, either, various laws, um, or it's, um, you know, it's PPD 28, it's the transparency report that you're, you're referencing. Um, and, and so, so have we made as much progress um, as we, we as anybody would like us to? Undoubtedly, no. Is this a process in which we're, we need to continue to learn and have these conversations and figure out what it is we're doing? Absolutely. On the other hand, I think it's important for us to understand we can't be completely transparent without then telling the you know bad guys in bad guy country trying to do bad things to us, so that they change what they're doing. And so, so there is a legitimate sort of conversation here about how we do that and um, we we need to keep that in mind Um, you know you know what we do and how we have these conversations are of interest to our foreign adversaries and and that's something we need to just keep in mind Um, that doesn't mean we can't be more transparent Um, proactive transparency So not just reacting to FOIA's, but how can we be out here and how can we be having these conversations? Um, We've written NSA has written two reports on how we do how we implement Section Seven Hundred Two, how we implement um, targeted collection under Twelve Triple Three. I'm here talking. Other people are here talking. That is not what you saw a year ago. ODNI was talking two years ago. Nobody was talking. So so you know we're making steps. We're moving forward. Um, Is there more to be done? Absolutely. I think the other part we need to keep in mind is how, has, how have things changed in the last two years, right? So we've been more transparent, but we also have a very active privacy and civil liberties oversight board. Um, you're gonna hear from them. They are active, they are there, and they're focused on privacy and civil liberties. So we've had lots of oversight from a number of different agencies, but this is a group that two years ago really got itself stood up. Um, I'm sure David has a story about <laughs> sort, of, sort of what he woke up to one morning um, in terms of the, revel- the, the various leaks. But, but, but that's another part of it. So I think as we think moving forward, what, what do we want to change? What do we want our intelligence agencies to look at? What are we comfortable with, what are we not? That's part of what we need to think about.
1: Can I ask you as the, sort of the representative of the privacy community here, do you accept that there are legitimate reasons and that it's good for society that in fact some of what NSA is doing remains secret
2: um I think that that is uh, I, I see why there, there are some utility uh, in and I think that there has been just massive over-classification, Uh that there hasn't been a, a sufficient uh, amount of of transparency um, and that uh, you know there, there are some times where uh, you know um, there could be something that is uh, kept under a seal or you know kept, you know in secret, but there should be a process by which that can be challenged and and brought out. there really isn't isn't one for uh, making that. so I guess one of the the, the greatest problems is, is not so much uh, just the secrecy, but also the uh, the difficulty of challenging that secrecy and saying that that has actually been overclassified, that has been uh, improperly kept secret.
1: Hmm.
3: You know, I, I think we also need to think about what are the, you know, we had uh, sort of the trifecta when you think about 215. Um, you had folks from the courts, you had briefings to the Hill, and you had, had the executive branch. So, um, I, I think the, the question is sort of what do we need to think about as we think about um, oversight and as we think about transparency that needs, you know, you know, are there tweaks to that? So, I think we've started to see the tweaks, and I think, the, um, you know, whether it's the amicus with uh, USA Freedom Act that we're seeing put into place, there's more transparency reports that are now required under Freedom Act. Um, but I think also understand what are some of the practical changes that we're expecting? What, what, do we, what, what gives us the intelligence that we need? in order to stay free. I mean, you know, we need to think about that. You know, there, there's a difference between intelligence and law enforcement. Um, I don't disagree that, that we need to have more transparency. You know, we're, we're a democracy and we need to make sure. But, you know, involving Congress was part of that. They're sort of, they're supposed to be our representatives.
1: <laughs> you know, it, it occurs to me you have a, a really interesting job, right, and part of what's interesting about it is here you are and we're asking you to represent the NSA and its mentality and rebut what, Kurt is saying and so forth, but then you go back to Fort Meade, and you're more like the representative of people in this room, or or Kurt, and you're representing <laughs> their points of view to those meetings. And I and for an agency that didn't even have the position that you're in before last year, can you talk a little bit about um, sort of what your job is like? And I mean, I'm I'm I, what I mean I mean that in a very concrete way. Like I assume you have SCI clearance. Yeah. Do you have a, a mandate that permits you to attend any internal meeting if you want to?
3: Absolutely, I report directly to the director. When we're having these conversations, he, he sort of looks to me and says, so how do you feel, Becky? Um, but that's one- Do you look
1: at any program you want to look Absolutely. at? Absolutely. Have you, and, and I, I assume that there's a certain trickiness to your job, right, because if you, if you don't protest too much, then you're not doing your job and you're you're wasting your life. But if you protest a lot, they'll they won't invite you to the meeting, right? And that and then you won't also be not fulfilling your function if they just exclude you because you're just the, you know, the annoying person who's raising these, you know, hippie issues. So how do you how do you strike that balance?
3: I love that you called it my hippie issues. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, to, I'm
1: like, thinking the, the mentality of the operators, right? Yeah. Why, um, who is this person? Who is
3: this person? What is she doing here? So I think there's a couple of things that are important to keep in mind. So I, I have to tell you, um, when the job was announced, I was at DHS, and I thought, who would want that crazy job? Right. Like, you know, look at what all the reading is that's going on in the newspaper. You know, this was sort of the August uh, 2013. 13 timeframe, the president says, you know, NSA, you're gonna get a civil rights and privacy officer. Um, After a fair bit of going around, I I applied and and started going through the process and realized a couple of things that don't always come out. One was um, that that the agency really does take protecting privacy seriously. As you walk in the building, there's a big sign that says it's one of our core values. I was like, oh, that's interesting. But every employee at the agency is protecting privacy and worrying about how how they do that. Um, But what we didn't have was somebody at that top point to focus it for the leadership, to bring up and say, when you bring these three different ideas together, this is the impact to serve civil liberties and privacy, and and talking to to the director about those. And so we have a a set of um, authorities, they're given to us by the outside world, and we're told, okay, you can do this. But there's a lot of flexibility Appropriately so, given technology, given the threats, um, as to how we implement those. And so a lot of my job is looking at those more micro-level decisions that, that that help inform the conversation and decide how we're going to implement this. Is it more privacy protective? Is it less privacy protective? So, what what on a day-to-day basis, what do I do? Whether it's, you know, as my children say, I'm a professional meeting goer because I'm never in my office, but it's also building some of these assessments into the the fabric of the agency. So bureaucracies are bureaucracies, so we're gonna use those to our advantage. So we're asking questions that maybe historically hadn't been asked. So a lot of our laws are based on where are you, what's your status, um, and and how are you physically doing the collection? I mean, that's what FISA is, That's that's how it works. A lot of the privacy conversation we have is what data do you have? And what are you going to do with it? When you have those two conversations, they're not happening on the same planes. They're not happening in those same places. And so we're spending time thinking through and having those types of more granular conversations that help us identify. That's really privacy sensitive. Let's talk about what are the mechanisms to creatively come up with new ideas.
1: Is there some program whose existence is not a classified fact? Maybe the transition to the USA Freedom Mm -hmm. Collection Program or something where... Your presence in the meeting had a substantive impact, and they were going to go this way, and then, in some even in some nuanced way, they went this way. That you can, or what I'm trying to get at is can we measure in some metric. The fact that you're there does it really matter and it, it,
3: it's a great question that doesn't it, like I don't know any privacy person in any building who's gonna say you know my agency was gonna do or my bill company was gonna do this really horrible thing and I was great and saved the day like like that's just not I, I'm not gonna talk that about that public. that would get me not invited to the meeting that would get me not invited to the office the next day um, and so so that gets to those hard conversations about the quote sort of trust me right I'm the government trust me that doesn't work real well but I think then that And that's where you look at your oversight. So I think an important function, um, an an important change in in NSA is is my office looking at these issues, but then that complements the oversight function. So people are willing to have conversations about the crazy-haired ideas that they want to do so that we can talk those through. And then we have folks, whether it's the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, whether it's Department of Justice, ODNI, the FISC, depending on sort of where we are in that regime, but they're willing to have those conversations in a way when you go outside of a build, outside of an agency, people aren't gonna have that conversation, it's gonna be more measured. And so that's an important portion of it. It's not measurable, it makes it difficult to demonstrate you know, the value of these positions, um, but it is an important aspect of how life works in these agencies.
1: All right, so we're going to have one last round of talk here, and then we're going to go to questions because we have 15 minutes left. So looking forward, after USA Freedom Act uh, became law in June, Mike Hayden, the former NSA director had, who had warned that passing USA Freedom would be uh, a gift to ISIS, um, <laughs> then had this to say. Uh, if, someone, if somebody would come up to me and say, look, Hayden, here's the thing. This Snowden thing is going to be a nightmare for you guys for about two years. And when we get all done with it, what you're going to be required to do is that that little 215 program about American telephony metadata, and by the way, you can still have access to it, but you have to go to a court and get access to it from the companies rather than keep it yourself. Uh, I go, and this is it after two years? Cool. Right, so the, the, the surveillance reform that was a gift to ISIS becomes a joke. Uh, and so that's obviously, he is a, he's a funny guy. He is a funny guy, uh, and that's a, that's, he exaggerates a little bit. But his premise is interesting, right? His premise is, we had this huge storm, an uproar, and secrets were dragged into the light, and there was a great convulsion in Congress uh, and in the courts, but all that comes out of it is this one little program, the operational capability remains more or less the same, but it looks like this, and now it looks like that, and that's it, and the reform energies are exhausted. And this is the second annual Surveillance Cato conference, but it, there will not be a third one because no one will care anymore. Uh, and we're done. And, and uh, you know, basically, uh, let's do something else and you know let me start with you Becky uh, from the NSA's perspective do, is there a sense that this is it and people should lay off them now and go pick on the CIA or you know <laughs> no, that there's nothing they can always go
3: yeah, yeah you can always go pick on another agency but but I think this is part of a conversation so so all of us at NSA here are, are largely you know, U.S. citizens, and this is part of our democracy. We need to continue to have this conversation. Is this done, thank you, you know, we're gonna go home and, and, and sort of carry on in our USA Freedom Act? I don't think so. I mean, you know, I didn't join the agency to sort of, I, I joined the agency in order to build a program where I feel confident that we are considering privacy and civil liberties throughout the entire process. Um, And and that means being more transparent. That means making sure there's analysis within the agency. It means being responsive to our overseers. Um, That is not one and done in two years. That is a five-year process. That is a 10-year process. Um, and, And so, no, I think that's not. I also think we should be having this conversation. So, we had the grand deal in 1978, so to speak. We had a few adjustments over time. Are we comfortable? That we're ready to be successful for the next 40 years in both countering the threats and 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 protecting privacy and civil liberties, they have to coexist. We can't do one or the other. Perfect security doesn't help anybody any more than um, you know having no security.
1: So let me that that throws it to you for the last word before questions. Are you satisfied? Is is reform done? Let's move on. Uh, no, I'm I'm not going
2: to give up on on reform uh, now. I mean, I, I, I guess I see what what Hayden's getting at. I think I take it in maybe a different different way than, than Cool, um, but you know, we're we're of course going to be continuing to try and work with the with the courts to to establish uh, that that. Uh... What's
1: your top wish list?
2: One more change. It's what? Um, one more change. Well, one more change would be ending bulk collection. Uh, and I know that that is that is a big change, or uh, or, or you know another way of putting it, what I was saying before. Uh, it, on top of my, my, my wish list would be to have a uh, a adversarial court, uh, maybe even the Supreme Court, uh, reach a decision on the legality and constitutionality of, of all of these programs based upon uh, the facts of how they're being uh, being used, uh, with with actually full uh, full information. All right.
3: I just I just want to, you know, the Supreme Court could make a decision, but technology is going to continue to change. And so I think we need to be thinking about not just the courts, but but how do we handle this, you know, you know, our iPhones didn't exist, you know, Fifteen years ago, maybe even ten—I'm I'm not sure when I, you know, sort of got attached. Like, like so, so the thought that sort of we would go to the Supreme Court, they would come on high and say this is the way it should be—seems to me doesn't necessarily acknowledge the fact that technology is shifting so much of what it is, what it is that's happening out in this space. So
1: even you know, if we did get a Supreme Court ruling ten years from now, we'd right. do, we do it all over again. Well, I will—I will point out that the FISA Amendments Act comes up for renewal in 2017, mm-hmm. and that there is an effort already in Congress to require warrants uh, before the government can look at already collected information that it gathered without a warrant for an American's identifier, which is something the intelligence community has been resisting. Uh, but we'll see. That, I, I imagine, is the next battle. I, mean, I think I, a,
2: absolutely. That I mean, with, with, with the sunset, that that is the nice feature of, of a sunset as it does force uh, a legislative uh, a debate. Um, it's, it's maybe not uh, the, the most effective tool uh, but it's, it's the one that we have for bringing that to the fore. And so there certainly will be substantial efforts to uh, to bring reform to the 702 program. So if we don't get a, a ruling that it is illegal or unconstitutional, then at least we could have a, uh, a legislative uh, discussion uh, of how to go forward. Because it's something that was left off of, of USA Freedom. USA Freedom didn't really address uh, the, the 702 program, uh, focusing instead just on the, uh, or not just on, but. Uh, very, very substantively on uh, bulk collection of telephony data.
1: All right, so uh, we have about ten minutes left, and so I've been asked to say for questioning, please wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone so that everyone in our room and audience can online can hear it, and announce your name and affiliation. And please let's keep this to like one sentence questions, not uh, uh, spiel's. Uh, in the front row, man.
2: Thank you, Victoria Feinberg, a retiree from the Department of Defense, originally from the Soviet Union. If we had a dissenter from from Russia or China, similar to Snowden, who would have revealed a similar type of collection going on in Russia or China or another country, even more egregious than what uh, happens here, would that change the public opinion, the legal opinion and the NSA position about
0: transparency?
1: So if a whistleblower from Russia or China shows up in New Orleans and gives a bunch of documents showing mass collection there, does that change anything for you? How would that affect the the, 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 the debate? Did anyone have a I mean, I think
3: this this demonstrates sort of the, the one-sided conversation that we've been having, which makes NSA sort of the boogeyman as opposed to looking at what the rest of the world is doing in this space. I mean, P- PPD-28, all of the transparency is so different than we see anywhere else in the country, anywhere else in the world. And, and so I think it's... it's um, I, I don't know exactly how otherwise to answer but I think that, that the fact that we are being transparent and are talking makes what is different about our democracy, and it's an important aspect. But it also, we need to keep in mind what those, what those other intelligence agencies are doing. Absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, in the back middle there. And please, again, uh, state your name and affiliation. Yes, hi. hi. Um, I'm Gus Alzona, a candidate for Congress um, in Maryland. Um, my question is this, um, related to the NSA. Um, are there levels of security, I guess top-secret uh, top security, of above that of the President of the United States? And uh, does that... Um, And somewhat related, does the president of the United States, either this president or the previous one, have complete unfettered access to the data that the NSA collects?
3: So certainly the president knows what it is we're doing, and we see an increased inclusion, um, an explicit inclusion in some of the PPD 28 uh, targeting procedures that that are out there. Um, to the extent that the president wanted to go in and search the SIGINT system, he would need to go through extensive training and um, spend a lot of quality time to understand what it was he was seeing. It would be audited. It would be reviewed. It would be reviewed beforehand and after. So um, there are a lot of things that he would have to do. But in terms of, of his ability, uh, yes.
1: I are think it would be legal for the president to query, like, Michelle Obama.
3: No, it would not be legal.
1: Okay, so he can't. I mean, he can't do he would,
3: that. He That's why I'm saying he'd have to go through all the training that all of our analysts have to go through. They would. He would have to follow all of the existing rules that are out there. There's no sort of like super exception because he's the president. He has to follow the same rules that anybody else would have to. He would probably. You know, I'm not exactly sure how that would work in terms of being under the director of national security agencies. Um, uh, 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 authorities under twelve triple three. I don't know how that quite quite works. Unitary
1: executive. Yeah, you, you
3: know, but but I'm just saying there there'd be a lot of things.
1: Uh, how about on the aisle here? Uh, oh, is there some a super secret stuff even the president doesn't get read into? I think she said no. They she, they know every he knows everything. His question was whether there's like an extra super duper top secret level that even the president doesn't know. I. But I'm asking this gentleman here. I think the answer to that is no. Yes. Thank you. I'm Yasir Abdullah, uh, uh, the ICFJ. I'm sorry, I have a cold. Yeah. uh, Sorry, uh, you're with the what? uh, The ICFJ, (laughs) the International Center for Journalists. Thank you. Yeah. uh, My question is concerning the penetration of the email of the CIA director. Uh, <laughs> although all the measures taken uh, and all the procedures and uh, the, the top-level directors' emails are penetrated, so what is the solution for this? Uh, There's a reference to the news uh, that a teenage Thank hacker you. has claimed that he, I guess, has shown that he broke into John Brennan's personal, not work, uh, classified email email. Uh, his AOL account, in fact. Uh. Any thoughts, Kurt? Um, well, I mean, I think it
2: is is—it uh, is interesting that we, we have uh, the, you know, the director of the CIA who clearly needs some OPSEC training, um, and that using a uh, an AOL account, and we also had this problem with Petraeus who was using the uh, saved uh, draft messages and Gmail trick, and, and that didn't work out for him. Uh, very well so uh, and I think you know bring this to to the NSA we haven't actually talked at all about the information assurance mission uh, but uh, something that, that uh, that's, we, that's the protection against hacking mission the protection against uh, hacking mission and uh, uh, one thing I think that you know I would rather that the NSA spend uh, more of its time on uh, than uh, in, increasing the amount of, of collection would be uh, adding adding additional security uh, and uh, uh, maybe giving some some training to top officials on uh, uh, operational security and and how not to get
1: hacked. All right. Last one.
2: Uh, Bruce. Bruce Schneier, Harvard's Berkman Center. One of the things we saw in the Snowden documents were some of the. Uh, the problems inside the NSA of of abuse. I mean, there weren't major, there was a few of them, and it's like any organization, what you're gonna get. But it was all handled internal. Is there any move to be more public about that with possibly bringing in outside law enforcement and public prosecutions for law breaking instead of just being in internal NSA audit and uh, disciplinary matters?
1: This is a reference to just for the, there was a a, a discovery that some NSA employees not with FISA data of Americans, but with 12333 data of foreigners were searching girlfriends' names and so forth, like the Michelle Obama thing, right, to see what they were up to. This was the sort of love and scandal. Uh, And they were caught, and they, I believe, were all fired. But it was handled internally. Is is there a, a reconsideration of how to deal with compliance incidents?
3: So um, the IG is the one who handles those. The IG has, a, you know, has its own special sort of process associated with, with Inspector Generals in terms of in the building, you know, how, how independent it is. Um, I don't think that we've really looked at, at going beyond what that is required. In terms of other compliance incidents, depending on the particular authority, those go through a variety of different people to be reviewed, whether it's a Department of Justice, whether it's at the FISC, whether it's at ODNI. Um, in terms of of compliance incidents. And um, I I think that the fact that there are um, those incidents is is an indication that we have a well-functioning compliance program. Um, You know, I've had my compliance folks say, there's nothing worse than somebody who says, I've had no incidents, therefore my compliance is perfect. We're human, that's unlikely. So I think that's an important expectation that you would want a functioning compliance program that actually is identifying these.
1: All right, so I think that wraps up our time. Please remain seated, I'm instructed to tell you. We will now move directly into the next session after the stage is refreshed. Thank you very much to the panelists for your time today.